All right. We have been in a sermon series on healing communities and mental health. We're actually wrapping that up today, putting the the bow on this one after six weeks. And we're going to be talking a little bit this morning about how faith communities can help diminish shame. So many of you have probably heard of Brene Brown by now, right? Lots of TED Talks. She's a researcher and an author, and she's studied shame extensively and its impact on us. And so she defines that. I've got this on your little sheet, and I think it's going to be in the, the Zoom there. Shame is the feeling that we're flawed and unworthy and undeserving of love and belonging, right? In other words, that we're not enough. And so for people who experience a lot of shame, that can have some really devastating effects on their emotional well-being, on their relationships, just an overall sense of self. So I think we have a story in our tradition that can help us get at ways of talking about shame and talking about how a faith community can help diminish that. And it's a story that we have called... um, about a man named Zacchaeus. Now, many of you have probably heard of him. If you grew up in Sunday school, you probably sang the song, right? He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, right? So you know this. Zacchaeus, come down from here. I I kind of still sing that song sometimes. Rachel knows in the house. (laughs) So let me tell you his story here. So a long time ago, there was a Jewish man named Zacchaeus, And he lived in a town called Jericho, which is a town that's close to the Dead Sea, and it still exists today. You can live in Jericho. It's about a day's walk from the big city of Jerusalem. Now, we know that Zacchaeus didn't have a great reputation, right? Because he was, have you know, a tax collector, right? We know this story. He was a tax collector. Nobody's over fond of tax collectors, even today. You know, next to our human rights campaign bumper stickers, nobody has like an I heart the IRS. No matter what your political persuasion is, right? My dad was an accountant, and he did not have anything for the IRS. So for Zacchaeus, under the Roman occupation, there was a taxation system that was especially exploitable, and it was called tax farming. And so the local tax collectors, like him, they were expected to hand over usually like a fixed amount of money to the authorities, to the Romans, at the end of each year. So, for example, if the Romans looked at Jericho and they're like, Zacchaeus, you're our tax guy. So at the end of this year, you should have collected, let's say, a million dollars that you need to hand to us for our coffers. The local tax guys were the only ones in their towns who knew, like, the nitty-gritty details of the ins and outs of the different laws for how much to collect from each house. And Zacchaeus himself probably did personally go around and collect the poll taxes and the land taxes from each house himself. So there was a lot of room in there to overcollect from people, right? So if Zacchaeus did that, let's say he collected $1.5 million at the end of that year, he could hand over a million to Rome, and then he could pocket the difference. And so tax collectors of his day very often did this because the incentive was high and the accountability was low, and so they were despised. This is reflected not only in the New Testament, but we see it in other parts of the rabbinic literature as well. They were considered ceremonially impure. Lying to them was seen as morally justifiable. It's like, yeah, you can lie to the tax man. Um, They were classed as robbers, and they were not allowed to act as witnesses in courts. So Zacchaeus being a tax collector was already problematic for him, and it meant that he was also working for Rome, right, which was oppressing his people, and he's collecting these taxes that helped Rome fund its military that kept Palestine occupied. And then we're told in the Gospel of Luke that he got rich in the process, which means he was especially corrupt, right? He didn't just make a living off of the excess, like he was wealthy. 
So one day, Zacchaeus, he heard about a popular rabbi named Jesus who was going to be coming through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. And so as Jesus approached the town, he's coming up this way. It said a crowd of people gathered around him and started to follow him through the streets of the city. He's got a little entourage going on, right? Maybe like Taylor Swift did last night at her concert (laughs) that David was at and that I wished that I was at. So So Jesus is walking through town, right? He's come in one, one end. He's going through the city. He's got this entourage. He may have been expected to stay there overnight, but it seemed like he was heading onward to Bethany where he had some friends. He had Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and he often stayed there instead. Well, like me, Zacchaeus was short, and he had trouble seeing over the crowd, right? And so he didn't want to call too much attention to himself by like butting through the crowd because people didn't like him. So it says this, Luke 19, 1 to 4, Jesus entered Jericho. He's passing through it. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was the chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. And he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now, sycamore fig, we know, is good for climbing. Lots of low branches that you can get on. It's got these big leaves that are easy for hiding in. But there's another piece of information that we can glean by it telling us that it was a sycamore fig. Right, so it's actually, I think it's the only time in the New Testament that the actual, that, that specific tree is called out. And I think it's telling us a little bit about like, the actual timeline or what's happening there. So what we know from the Mishnah is that that type of tree... Um, the sycamore fig, it had to be planted at least 50 cubits outside of towns. So it had to be planted at least about 75 feet outside of the city, you know, or further. And this is because sycamore figs were really large and considered sort of tent-like, right? So they were considered to be like a building structure. And so if anything ceremonially unclean happened under one of the branches over here, it meant that anyone who was standing under another part of the tree would also become ceremonially, it's hard for me to say, I've had to say it like three times, ceremonially unclean because they're under the same roof, so to speak. And then that would require certain rituals, like maybe a mikvah, to restore that person's ability to go and worship at the temple. And things that could make you unclean might include um, standing under the same tree as somebody who maybe has a skin disease, Maybe somebody who recently had a baby and hasn't had time to go to the temple in Jerusalem and have the purification ritual, right? So there could be a lot of different people. So to like reduce the possibility of people accidentally becoming unclean, you know, if you've got a city with just tons of big trees, they're like, you've got to plant those big trees like sycamores and carobs outside of town. Plant the, plant the palm trees inside of town. Jericho actually means city of palm trees, and I've been there, and it's still very desert-like. There actually aren't that many big trees, but the ones that they have um, used to be at least planted outside of town. So knowing this about sycamores, we can kind of visualize what was happening. It seems like as Jesus was moving through the city with his entourage, Zacchaeus went ahead outside the other part of the city and ran along the same road that went to Bethany, to find the tree outside the city where he could perch. And he's, he's kind of stalking Jesus a little bit, isn't he? It reminded me a little bit, um, Rachel and I were working outside in our backyard in our garden almost all day yesterday, and our cat, who I know I talk about a lot, Obi-Swan Kenobi, I love him, <laughs> he has this little perch of trees and bushes and a lilac thing where he goes and he just like stakes us. And I can't tell if he's hunting us or if he's protecting us, but you can kind of feel a little bit watched, right? 
And that's what he's doing. He's kind of hiding out in the trees and just kind of looking. And that's what I was picturing. Like um, Zacchaeus is up in this tree and he's kind of staking Jesus out. So it says, uh, this is verses five and six. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. As I was reading this and I was sort of meditating on like, why would Jesus know his name? Right, so either they met before, which is possible. It doesn't say it in the story. They probably hadn't, but it's possible. I think it's more likely that someone in the crowd, as they're approaching out of town, looked up and was like, there's somebody up in that tree, looking probably a little bit undignified for a rich, powerful man. And then the crowd just started talking about it. You know, somebody's like, oh, that's Zacchaeus. Ah, I hate that guy. He's so pathetic. Gah. Right? And so if you read the Gospels and you pay attention particularly to the crowds in the Gospels, you might notice that the writers have a lot of weariness because crowds can become hostile. Right? They can kind of turn on you. Sometimes they're quite friendly and sometimes they can turn and be scary. And we know that Jesus was pretty sensitive to this dynamic. Even early on in his career, like a crowd of people from his hometown turned on him and tried to like shove him over a cliff. And so I think Jesus had a little bit of, of compassion or empathy for this. And what we see here, I think, is Jesus taking Zacchaeus's public shame or his humility and this crowd's negative attention and turning it onto himself. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Right? And so this was probably after Jesus had already gone all the way through town. He'd already gone out the other side. And now he's going to double back to go stay at Zacchaeus's. Right? It reminds me a little bit of like if a kid's getting bullied at school and then like one of the older, cooler kids comes up and says to the kid getting bullied, like, you know, come sit with me. Don't worry about them. Right? That's a little bit the dynamic here. Luke 19, 7 to 10. All the people saw this and they began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up. I'm assuming this is at dinner. There's a little time jumpment here. And he said to Jesus, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Right? So we see Zacchaeus so moved by Jesus's willingness to share his humiliation, to be seen with him, to dine with him, that he pledges to make amends to the people that he's hurt in his community. Right? Half of the possessions to the poor, and then also to the people that he's hurt. And so I think there's this kind of lovely redemption arc that we see for Zacchaeus. Now, if we take this story and we're just looking at it through the lens of what it means to be a healing community, I notice a couple of things that might be helpful. And the first one is I actually chose this particular story to talk about this. It's because Zacchaeus is not an uncomplicated character. Right? He's not an uncomplicated character. Because on one hand... I think he's rightly resented for being what's essentially like a white-collar thief, right? He fleeces people. He's working for the Romans. On the other hand, he's also a Jewish man in a time when Jewish people were terribly oppressed. And so we don't know what kinds of traumas that his family saw or that he saw. Maybe killings, maybe beatings, maybe his family had lost a ton of money to the Romans. We don't know. And I think like us, parts of his identity are privileged and parts are not, right? And so he's got these different layers that are happening. 
I just wanted to note that like reading this as somebody um, who also has complicated identity, in some ways I have privileged identity as a white woman and in other ways less so, I was reading it and I was thinking, you know, among minority populations, there sometimes is a special ire for people who are both oppressed and who actively harm other oppressed people. Right, ah, it just gets me. I think of, you know, queer politicians or public figures that turn around, they get power, and then they support policies that like actively harm queer people. And I think, I mean, the low-hanging fruit is like George Santos, right, who's got a whole lot going on. But he gets into power, into Congress, and then he starts supporting anti-trans legislation. And there's a part of me that can have compassion and be like, man, there just must be some deep level of shame that is going on there. And yet, God, it's like you're the worst. You're some of the most dangerous. Because you either don't understand or you don't care about the like, cover that you're giving to the harm that's done. Like, well, you know, there's this gay guy that supports it, so it's probably fine. Right? There's probably Supreme Court justices who may fall in this category as well. Now, I can imagine Zacchaeus eliciting a similar reaction right, from people around him who are like, look, I understand you're trying to survive and thrive under this hostile empire, and yet it's just like, dude, you are dangerous and you are supporting the system that is hurting us. And he is both of these things, right? I think he carries the shame that minorities carry, and he carries guilt. And we remember that Brene Brown talks about shame is the feeling that we're flawed and unworthy and undeserving of love, but she, she differentiates that from guilt, right? So shame is not healthy for us. Everybody deserves to feel like they're enough, to be carried, like, worthy of life and love and dignity. Um, shame is not great for us. Guilt... It's not so bad, right? Feelings of guilt let us know that we're doing something wrong and that we need to be able to change our ways and make repairs for our social connections and for the thriving of our communities, right? So Zacchaeus carries this shame and this stigma that caused him to want to hide from the crowd, right? So he clearly doesn't feel quite safe or like he belongs in it. And yet he also carries guilt from knowingly doing these selfish things that harm himself and others. And so what we see here, I think, is Jesus addressing the shame Right? I'm willing to be publicly seen with you, and you, no matter who you are, you are worthy of love and belonging and friendship, and I'll make that invitation. And when he does that, there's room for Zacchaeus to address and release what's causing him guilt. Right? And I think healing communities can model this on some level. I like to say our aim is shame reduction. We are not perfect at it because we are human, but that is a goal. And the idea is that you just as you are, are loved and accepted by God. However it is that you imagine God or all the different aspects in the Christian soup that we would say are all part of the one God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, the divine spirit of love, creator, whatever, Sophia, all of this, you belong and accepted full stop. And there's nothing about you that would keep Jesus from having a meal with you, even at cost to his reputation. And so Jesus invites himself, essentially, to go stay at Zacchaeus' house. And I do note that he does it with Zacchaeus' consent and enthusiasm, right? He didn't just show up there. Um, and that same invitation we make open every week when we symbolically eat together when we have communion. Because everyone is welcome. You don't have to take communion. You do it with your own consent or your own comfort level, but you are welcome. There's nothing that excludes you from the table your gender, who you love, anything you've done, what you believe, what you don't believe, etc. And this is how we emulate that act of hospitality and invitation.
that we see in that. Now, I was thinking on the way here, actually, this isn't in my notes, but I was like, you know, I used to get really hung up on, there's a little bit in Corinthians, it's like when you, you know, come to the communion table, that you need to like check your heart. And like in my 20s, I used to be like really intense about that. Like, oh, I need to make sure that I'm not like doing anything that's harming myself or anybody else before I can come to the, to the table. I don't know if any of you have experienced that. As I've gotten older, I feel that less. I actually feel like there's maybe a little bit different way to look at it. I don't think that's what Paul is doing the more that I've read Paul. I think the idea is like the message here is so liberating and it's so open and it's so welcome and it's the only table rules you don't get to make the table rules is like examine your heart and can you actually enact that or are you still finding yourself wanting to make the table rules and so that's how I read that bit in Corinthians a little bit more of like, can you come to the table with these open hands, knowing that it's not our ability to judge, but the judging is left up to Jesus. So if that's helpful to anyone, that occurred to me on the way to church. Um, just to wrap it up here, the second thing I find helpful in the story for us to talk about is I think we see this model of restorative justice, right? And so we see Zacchaeus acknowledging the harm in his community and pledging to make amends for that. And I think this can, this can just challenge us a little bit within this space of belonging with God to, to be able to then examine our own complicity in systems of injustice without feeling like the shame of that, of like, oh, I've got all of this. Ah, I'm just not a good person because of this. Ah, that's, not, that's not what's at stake, right? It's just like, how am I participating so that we can take concrete steps toward reparations? And I use that word a little deliberately because I'm going to do a two-part sermon series starting next week on Juneteenth and reparations um, because healing and forgiveness requires restitution. And so I think Zacchaeus' ability here to examine his own guilt and the system was made possible just by knowing his place of belonging, at least with Jesus and his followers, that that was secure, right? And it's out of that place that he's then able to do his self-examination. Right, we saw in the very end there, Jesus affirmed, he said, Zacchaeus, you're a child of Abraham. And that seems like something we could just read over really quick. But I think what happened here is that Jesus was like speaking into Zacchaeus and who he was, right? There's like an identity issue at play here. He's saying, you are a Jewish man. You're a son of Abraham. You are worthy of belonging and connection. Like, be who you're meant to be, right? Be who you're meant to be. This is who you're meant to be, not, not somebody who's cheating other people. Be who you're called to be. And I think that message then extends to us. It's like, you're created by a loving God. You are worthy of love and connection. Doesn't matter what you've done. Go and be who you're meant to be, right? People of love and justice and peace. And I always just like to underscore that I don't think it's a story here that's just speaking to like minorities about shame, because Everyone can, everyone can experience shame. And in fact, in our culture, I would say men experience a lot of shame as well. I know some of you guys, you get kind of categorized as like straight white guys and your allies, but there's also can be a lot of shame that can be carried in that space. And I think it's helpful to hear that I think we're in this project of what we call holistic allyship, right? Where allies can, and minorities, I mean, can be allies to help liberate privileged people in those places where we don't understand, and that includes me, and privileged allies can stand and uphold minorities, right? And I think of Jesus was kind of taking the place of an ally in this story. He's like, I'm going to take the shame that you usually carry, your stigma, and I'm going to put it on me, which some of you experience just being part of a church like this, right? Your parents, you go home to grandparents, and they're like, why are you part of that gay church? 
right? That's, that's part of allyship, and that's part of turning the shame and the stigma off of the stigmatized and helping to carry it. Does that make sense? And so I think that's a beautiful part of this story as well. And so we see that whole spectrum sitting equally here um, before Jesus. So with that, I know it was a little Bible heavy, um, maybe a little bit more than normal. We usually do a meditation guided or, or silent. And I thought this morning it might just be helpful to sit here and just sort of um, spend some time with the Holy Spirit thinking through what some of our different layers of privilege are. What are some of the places where maybe we've felt shame or like we don't belong before God? Um, and just let the Holy Spirit speak to us a little bit. People and babies make noises. I'll let you know when that time is up. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help us as a community to break down the barriers that divide us and that we can really have shame-reducing hospitality that is open to everyone and that we can model that and enact that. I ask that you would help us to actively pursue restorative justice, um, that you can teach us about our own complicity in some of these systems of oppression so that we can work um, toward a more equitable society. And I ask that just your Holy Spirit would guide us in all of this and that we would be able to be open and embrace um, everyone who comes into our doors and that everyone just knows deep down here that there is space for them and that there is always space at the table of the divine God of love. Amen. <laughs>